0: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, thank you that it has supreme authority over our lives. And I pray that you would use this morning the reading of the word, the preaching as well to transform our lives. I pray that you would overcome the resistance of our hearts, any distractions in our minds and help us to focus on truly how great you are. That we would understand more fully your love, your grace, your forgiveness that you've extended to us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Last Sunday, Rick preached on the first two parables of Luke chapter 15. And this morning, I'll be following up with the third parable in verses 11 through 32. The parable commonly known as the prodigal son. So, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, the he being Jesus, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he, all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. These many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. A quick disclaimer, this will not be a New Year's Resolution sermon this morning. Part of the reason is I can never keep one and I do not want to set us up for failure right off the bat. This is a popular story, a very popular parable. Jesus spoke in parables at times to tell stories, but it was more than just a story. Jesus wasn't just about good stories. The stories that he would tell had a lesson in it for us, and it had a lesson for his hearers. The parables that we see throughout Scripture reveal the kingdom values, the character of the kingdom of God. They show us the very heart of God. They reveal that. Parables also were told in a way that they would jolt the listeners into a decision of some kind. On another level, the parables concealed as well as revealed – They concealed the truth from those that did not want to hear what Jesus actually had to say to them. And so parables may be heard, but they may not be grasped. They may not be fully grasped. The truth would remain hidden from their eyes and from their hearts unless their eyes and their hearts were open. And we understand this is the work of the Lord to open our eyes and our hearts to clearly hear what Jesus has to say. And in this parable, Right before this parable, at the end of verse 14, or chapter 14, Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So who's listening? What we know is that um, in verse 25 of chapter 14, great crowds are accompanying Jesus. So great crowds are following him. Among these crowds, we see in Chapter 15, verse 1 Tax collectors and sinners, they are drawing near to him. Now, a tax collector was one that sold their soul, so to speak, to Rome. So essentially, they were robbing from their own Jewish countrymen. And so they were absolutely despised. But then there was also sinners. Sinners would be prostitutes and others who, because of their immorality, or outside of the the religious community so they as well were despised by the religious leaders which following in in, in verse 2 you have also the people that are listening the pharisees and the scribes it's the scriptures tells that they grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them and so they're grumbling they're appalled to put it mildly that Jesus would associate himself with tax collectors and sinners after all as they understood it god had completely abandoned sinners and god was in favor of the righteous but jesus in luke 19 verse 10 and rick made reference to this uh, last week when he uh, when he preached jesus makes a very clear statement in 19:10 that the son of man came to save and seek the lost the son of man came to seek And save the lost, and this brings us to the parables that Jesus, or excuse me, that Rick covered last week. Um, I'm just going to keep going. All right, so we have uh, so we have the parable of the lost sheep, which essentially what shepherd will not go out and reclaim the sheep that is his and then celebrate call a community together and celebrate and then following that parable the, the parable of the prodigal or the parable of the lost coin what woman will not search for a coin of great value when she has lost it and then again call the community together to celebrate these parables are emphasizing the joy of the father when the lost are found the joy of the father when lost sinners are found. And that brings us to the parable of this morning. Wouldn't a gracious father seek out his sons who are lost? And at this point, Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees and the scribes who despise the sinners. They are mocking Jesus saying, this man eats with sinners. He associates with sinners. And Jesus is speaking directly to them. And he's challenging their understanding of the very heart of God. His love, his forgiveness, his grace, his great compassion for those who desperately need it. So this parable as well, it invites us to assess our own beliefs and our own behaviors. How well do we grasp How well do we understand the very love, the very forgiveness, the very grace of God? Do we take it for granted? Do we cherish it? The parable invites us to explore this question by putting ourselves in the shoes of the sons that are in this parable. So Jesus tells the story of a man with two sons. The younger son asks his father for the share of the inheritance and then he squanders it in reckless living. The uh, the title "Prodigal," prodigal meaning wasteful. This is a wasteful son. So, and remember, as this is as this parable is directed at the Pharisees, they despise sinners, and right now the younger son fits the category of sinner very neatly. In verses 12 and 13, the actions of the younger son in this culture would have been extremely offensive and shocking to the Jewish listeners. He says in verse 12, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Okay? According to Jewish law in Deuteronomy 21, there were provisions that... um, that the inheritance would be received by the children, and especially the older son would get a double portion, which means the older son would get two-thirds of it, the younger son would get one-third of it. And it wasn't uncommon for a father to set this up ahead of time, especially if he wanted to retire. But But what is extremely offensive, what is unusual about this passage, is that the younger son demands it, and he demands it now. He demands, Father, give me my share of the property now. This would have been deeply, deeply disrespectful in this culture. It's as if the younger son is saying, Father, I cannot wait for you to die. I want what's coming to me, and I want it now. Whereas it would have been appropriate at this point for the father to deal severely with his son, instead the father takes the hit. Not only is the father rejected by the son, but the father also hands over a third of his property. And in in a land and in a culture where your identity in large part is tied to the land, this is no small deal for the father. So by taking the inheritance in advance and running, you could say that the uh, young son was finding himself by going to a foreign land, what the son has done is completely cut himself off from the family. At this point, he would be considered dead to that community. He would forfeit his claim to the estate. He would lose his name. He would lose his standing in the community. And as the story goes on, the plot thickens as the son runs out of money and his absolute desperate need. And so we have to understand as the, as the listeners... For the Jewish listeners, they're horrified as they're hearing this story. Because here is a Jew who has gone to an unclean foreign country, living among unclean people according to their laws, and worst of all, the job that he's left with is feeding unclean animals. This is as low as you can go if you are a Jewish man. But then verse 17 says, That the prodigal son came to his senses. When he came to his senses, he recognized that he had sinned against God and against his father. So he recognized that he's absolutely desperate. He has nothing. And verse 16 says, no one gave him anything. So he's left alone. He's desperate. Recognize that even his father's servants have more than enough food. They have all their provisions met. And so he comes to his senses and realizes I'll go back home and I'll plead with my father just to treat me as one of the hired servants. So in this, so far, what we have is a shocking request and actions from a son. But what's even more shocking, again, to these Pharisees who are hearing this story is the response of the father. We see in verse 20, As the son arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him, and kissed him. Okay, in this culture, the son's, what the son did, shaming the family, could have resulted in him being even beaten in public at that point. At the very least, oftentimes, what a family would do is they would hold a ceremony of disinheriting. And so that is what would be expected. But instead of punishment... Look at what the father does. It's shocking, the unbelievable forgiveness and grace that he shows. And we see this in a few ways. First of all, we see that the father was actually still looking for him. That we get this picture in our minds of a father who is throughout the day, at moments in time, looking, looking for his son. Wondering if he's going to come back home. The father has not yet written off his son. The second thing that's shocking is that the father ran. To us, that is no big deal. Again, we have to put ourselves in this culture to understand. A distinguished Middle Eastern patriarch, they did not run. Like, never did they run. They strolled. It would be absolutely undignifying for a man to run, and yet this man ran to his son. And third, he embraced him and kissed him. And the idea here is that he fell upon him, fell upon his neck and kissed him. And the kisses would be those of reinstatement, of showing grace and forgiveness, of showing great joy that the son has returned. Now, what we know from this passage is that the son had been working through his mind what he'll say to the father. Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm not worthy. Just treat me as a hired servant. But he doesn't even get the last part out because the father interrupts him. The father excitedly tells his servants, go, bring him the best robe. That would be a mark of distinction. Bring a ring and put it on his finger. That would be a mark of authority. And some have said that even that shows that he would be able to do family business once again by having that ring. Put shoes on his feet to show that he's not a slave, but he's a free man. Bring the fattened calf, verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Fattened calf was specially prepared for occasions, for grand occasions, very special occasions such as this, and there would be enough to feed the whole community. This is a community celebration. In verse 24, For this my son was dead and is alive, the father says. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Okay, so at this point... We long for a happy ending. We'd love to see the older brother come in, see his son, grab him by the neck, give him a noogie. Hey, it's great to have you back. But that's not what happens. In fact, if if this was a movie, this would be the part where the dark clouds begin rolling in as the older son comes in and recognizes what's happening. The older son comes in from work. He hears all the commotion, he hears the dancing, he hears the celebration. And he gets the scoop that his brother is back in town and that his dad is throwing a party for him. And he's angry, not happy at all with this scene. So he refuses to go into the party. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we can understand this and say, yeah, doesn't seem quite right, does it? But the father, what we see, the father takes the initiative. He goes out to his, to his older son And this time it's the older son that is absolutely offensive to his father. He doesn't say father and plead his case. Instead, the older son says, look, look you, in a respect-based culture, this is absolutely offensive and outrageous. Look you, verse 29, all these many years I have served you. Even the connotation there, the emphasis on serving you would be more of slavery. All these many years, I have slaved for you. And not once did I disobey your command. Interesting that he says that. Not once did I disobey your command, except maybe the command to honor your father and mother, which he is clearly not doing at this moment. But then he goes on to say, essentially, you never gave me anything, but this son of yours, notice, not my brother, this son of yours, he squandered everything with prostitutes. And even that, probably a bit of slander. He has no idea how the son is, how his brother has spent the money, but he's angry, he's infuriated. So, what we see coming out here is the true character. The true character of the older son is revealed. He's rude, bitter, thankless. And what we see is he's self-righteous. And right now what's happening is Jesus is holding up a mirror to the Pharisees. And he's saying, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. You are the older son. This parable is warning them that they are indeed the older son. They're standing outside and they're mocking. And surely they're saying, you're telling me that this younger son, this sinner who went off and and did all this, he goes into the party and yet the faithful son is left outside would have been unimaginable for them. The self-righteous, the Pharisees, and others who are self-righteous always feel entitled, always feel that they deserve more, that they're not treated as well as they should be. I agree with some commentators who say that the, name, the parable of the prodigal son doesn't do this justice. Be better named the parable of the two lost sons. Because we have one son, the prodigal, who was lost. But now we have another son who is definitely lost. He's standing outside of the celebration. And we see the father's response in verse 28. He pursues, he entreats the son. In other words, he's encouraging, he's begging, pleading with the son to enter in. But notice, notice that the father ignores the offenses of the son, and he gently corrects him. He says in verse 31, son, you are always with me. In other words, you are not a slave. And he goes on to saying, all that is mine is yours. In other words, you are not deprived. The father is pleading with the son to enter in, to celebrate, to rejoice, because the son was dead and is alive. He was lost is now found. Jesus speaks of that two times, dead and alive, lost and found metaphor speaking of sin and salvation. And what Jesus is doing in this story, or I should say what the father is doing in this story, Jesus is actually doing in real life with these Pharisees. He's ignoring their offenses and he's inviting them in to the celebration. He's warmly inviting them in. And at this point, it's the older son, it's the Pharisees who are the ones who are angry and who are mocking. And this parable is left open-ended. The Pharisees are the ones that must finish the story. It ends abruptly there. Now, in light of this parable, there's really two questions that I want to take up this morning. The first question is this. Do we see the gospel in this parable? Do we see the good news of God in this parable? And definitely through this parable, Jesus is proclaiming a very shocking, amazing love, grace, forgiveness of the Father. And as one, uh, as one commentator put it, I think he puts this very well. He says this. The parable thus reveals to us something immensely important about God and his kingdom and his method of working. We see here the sinner, wretched, lonely, estranged from the father in the father's house. And we see also the father standing by the wayside, receiving the son in mercy and forgiving him all. That surely is what the gospel is about, the gracious disposition of God towards men, the forgiveness of sins, the restoration of a broken relationship between creature and creator, the casting down of the wall between them, the reconciliation of offender and offended. With God taking the initiative and stretching out his arms in tenderness and pity, graciously, benevolently inviting sinners to himself." I think it's a great statement of what's happening in this parable. It is Jesus who is speaking this parable. He is the one who is speaking of the Father's love. And it's Jesus that opens up the way to the Father's love. In a sense, opens up the Father's home to us. And invites sinners to come home. This very parable falls within the section of scripture where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In other words, he is on his way to the cross. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Titus in chapter 3. A great statement about the work of God, the work of Christ. Titus in chapter 3, starting in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Okay, pause there. Works done in righteousness. Right there. That's the Pharisees understanding their salvation based on what they do. No. Let's go back to, to Titus chapter 3 again. Verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And We see here becoming heirs by God's grace, we've been adopted into his family, heirs. We have it all. There's nothing left that we do not have truly according to God's goodness. We have it all. So do we see the gospel here? I believe it's, it's clearly here, the love, the forgiveness, the grace of God. The second question to take up with the remainder of our time, who do you identify with in this parable? as we read through this, who do you say, oh, that's me. That's me. This parable invites us to do a heart check. If we think of it in this way, when we are sick, we need to be able to diagnose the symptoms so that we we can have a, a good understanding of what the root issue is so that we can apply medicine rightly. And in this sense, we have to diagnose. What are the symptoms? We say it this way. So what are the symptoms of the younger son? How do we know that we're playing the younger son? We see it when we understand or we think. We're tempted to understand that God is truly standing in the way of our forgiveness. He's standing in the way of our fun. He's standing in the way of our joy in life. That what we desire truly is to be liberated liberated to be self-governing and liberated to be, to live a self-serving life free to pursue our pleasures and our appetites wherever they might lead but as we see from this parable we see from the scriptures we see from our lives they typically don't lead us well do they our passions our appetites do not lead us well in fact they leave a pattern of reckless sin and then feeling unworthy of God at times. We see this with the prodigal, feeling very unworthy of his father. At times in our lives, we see our patterns, and we, see, and we feel very unworthy of the grace of God. Part of the root issue is failure to grasp the amazing love, the amazing forgiveness, the amazing grace of God that has been lavished upon us, that we truly have everything We lack nothing if we are in Christ. We lack nothing. And God shows himself over and over to be completely good, completely wise in our lives. So what does the the younger son need to hear and grasp more deeply? I believe Augustine put it very well when he says, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless till they find our rest in you, but we have restless hearts. And at times, our restless hearts lead to passions, passions that take us further and further away from the understanding of the very grace of God in our lives. And our passions that lead us away from God leave us stranded and hopeless. But what this son in here needed to hear, what we need to hear is that when we come to our senses, when we recognized, when we recognize our sin, that repentance is always possible for those who desire God. Repentance is always possible. It's been said there's no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. We're never too far from God. God's love and forgiveness can pardon any of our sin, any of our misery and restore us, restore us completely back to himself. And so when we're tempted to say, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Scripture speaks otherwise, especially if you would turn to Isaiah. Isaiah holds out a great promise, a great promise for us. Isaiah, the beginning of chapter 61, Isaiah 61 is quoted in, in this gospel of Luke. Starting in verse 1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opened of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this promise that's held out, we see in Luke, this is speaking of Jesus, who has been anointed to preach the good news. And then this goes on. In verse 10 of Isaiah 61, the promise is, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The image I want to play out here is with the younger son. When he comes back, he's clothed by his father in a robe. But how much more, through Christ, are we clothed in his righteousness, And his amazing thing for us to grasp is that because of Jesus' perfect life, his perf- perfect death, that he has perfectly clothed us with his grace and with his righteousness. So we have great hope, and especially for our prodigal loved ones. Many, um, there are many of us who know loved ones and many parents at times of sons and daughters, that they long that they would come back to their senses, long that they would understand their great need. And so we see in this parable, great hope, not just for us, but great hope for others. And it's a great prayer that we would pray that they would come to their senses and that God would so work in their lives to bring them back to an awareness of their desperate need for him. Okay, so with this, the symptoms of the older son. Now, first... I want to quickly clarify that if we're in Christ, we're not Pharisees. Pharisees are ones who rejected Christ. But for believers, we need to be able to assess, when are we falling back into the spirit of the Pharisee with the way that we look at people and understand God? At times, one of the symptoms that we're falling into the spirit of Pharisee is grumbling, it's a lack of gratitude. One way that this, was, uh, that this came clear to me was uh, a time where my wife and I were in Disney, went to Disney World with, with our children. This was years ago. And it was at the end of the day, the park was closed down. There was only a few cars left. We were walking to our car, but we noticed this other family walk into a car as well. It was a, it was a husband and a wife. And basically, they're limping Like they are absolutely exhausted, you can tell. Their arms are full of cotton candy, uh, you know, wearing the hats with the funny ears on them. They got all the autograph stuff from Mickey and the gang. They've got it all. Toys. But there's a younger son that's about 10 steps behind him, and he's yelling as loud as he can, wailing and crying, But why don't you want to buy me a toy? Because they just went through, you know, when you leave the park, you go through the gift shop, and he didn't have enough. He's whining and complaining because he had all this, but why didn't you buy me that toy? You don't love me. And oftentimes, we are that child. Or we could say at times we slip in, we are. The spirit of the Pharisees who we've been giving, we've been given everything if we truly understand the riches of the gospel, the riches of the grace, the forgiveness, the love of God. But at times we want more and that really is the spirit of the Pharisee entitled to more in an attitude at times of God, you owe me. I've sought to be faithful to you, therefore you owe me. You owe me great health. You owe me stable finances. You owe me good relationships. You owe me that I'll never have a prodigal son. But we have to be very careful with what we claim that we deserve. Because really, isn't it about grace? It really is about God's grace. And he can use any of the above circumstances, our relationships, our finances, our health, anything to draw us closer to us, to use these in a way to sanctify our lives. So one symptom of the older brother is an entitled spirit, a grumbling spirit. We have to look at that in our lives and say, does this at times represent us? Another aspect symptom of an older son would be critical of others. At times, do we see ourselves as superior to others? sinners, quote-unquote, that are around us. And maybe, uh, maybe it's not even the sinners. Maybe it's the people within this church or other churches. We see ourselves as superior in our theology and in our Bible knowledge and our ethics that we do at work. You name it, whatever it might be. But at times, if we uncover it, it's a lack of humility. It's a lack of understanding the grace of God in our lives. And the question we have to ask is, what about love? What about love? Isn't that really what it is about, of understanding the love of God to us, that we would love him and that we would love others with an increasing love? So the root issue, we could say, again, failure to grasp God's amazing love is forgiveness is grace to us. Knowing that we have everything, we lack nothing, he's perfectly good, he's perfectly wise. So what does the older son need to hear and what does the older son need to grasp more deeply? It's the words of the father in this parable. Child, you are always with me and all that I have, all that is mine, is yours. The older son needs to hear that nothing good is withheld from our lives. Nothing good. So if we've received grace, we're to freely give grace. As we contemplate the grace of God in our lives, it should move us towards gratitude towards God, recognizing that we deserve anything but God's grace, and yet he's granted it to us. But it should also move us to love others very well. And we need to do this inside the church, And outside the church, within our church, there are going to be people that are very hard to love. Keep looking at me. Don't look around the room. Somebody will think that you don't love them if you make eye contact with anybody. But there are people within our family of God that are going to be very difficult to love. And I I love the perspective. John Stott, um, a a great writer, says this. The only way to preserve or, or the only way to persevere is to remember who they are and how precious they are to to the sight of God. The three persons of the Trinity are committed to their care and calls us to commit ourselves to them as well. And he goes on to say that that at times when someone is approaching him within the church and it's somebody that he struggles to love, here's what he goes through in his mind. I found this very helpful, not for this church, but uh, very helpful. He says... What a precious person you are to God. It is a privilege for me to be called to care for you. Oh, what a great, as we apply that, you know, Jesus did make the statement that people will know you're my disciples by love as we show that kind of love. Absolutely transforming. But as well, not just inside the church, we have to love outside of the church doors as well. So the question is, who is God sovereignly? Sovereignly placed in your life. Who is very difficult for you to love? Coworker? Classmate? Could be neighbors. Could even be friends. Could be family members that we spent the holidays with. Who is it that is extremely difficult for us to love? And what do we do? How do we apply the grace, the forgiveness, the very love of God that we've received In other words, this parable is very clear, that God is overjoyed when sinners come to repentance. So what role do we play in people's lives, hoping, praying for them, that God would bring them to a place of loving him? We should all be able to identify with both the sons in this story. But it's even more important that we grow in our ability to identify with the father, He really is the hero of the story. The central figure is the father. And so the parables point us to a sovereign love of God who actively, actively seeks unworthy sinners, those who do not seek him. Again, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And here's a beautiful picture that we have in this. We need to make a contrast here to end with. And it's the contrast of the older brother here. When the younger brother went off and squandered everything, what did the older brother do? He did nothing. And yet, we have to understand, the person that's telling this story is our elder brother, Jesus. And what did he do? As we were lost, distant from him, came from heaven to earth at great cost, Our elder brother absolutely pursued us. And anytime there's forgiveness, there's a great cost. And look at the cost of the elder brother. All the way to the cross died for us on our behalf to pay our debt. And there at the cross, Jesus was stripped naked of his robe and of dignity so that we would be robed in righteousness. Jesus was treated as an absolute outcast so that we would be able, as he could bring us in, only he could bring us in as members of God's family in great standing. So what transforms the younger son and the older son, what transforms us increasingly is that understanding, the very grace of God in our lives, the way it's played out in our lives. And as we pray and earnestly seek to extend that grace to others, This parable points us to an amazing love of the Father. But really, what it ends up doing, ultimately, it points us back to Jesus. It points us to Jesus as our only hope. That Jesus is calling sinners to repentance. And he's calling the righteous to accept sinners, to understand and grasp his very love, his very grace, his very forgiveness that came at such a cost. And the reality... Of this parable, what it brings us to is that if we have Christ, if we see this and enter into the celebration, we have everything. We have everything. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us to increasingly grasp your love, your grace, and your forgiveness that we can experience only through Christ pray that it would transform our lives. And thank you for your grace to sinners, that indeed, Christ, you did come from heaven to earth. And you bore such a tremendous cost. And that because of that, we are absolutely free, but we're free to follow you. And I pray that we would do that, that throughout this coming year and for the rest of our lives, that we really would understand increasingly your grace and that it would move us, it would transform us to be have absolute great gratitude towards our Heavenly Father, but also that it would move us to love well, to love others well. And Father, for our church, I do pray that uh, with the needs, needs of illnesses and sickness, with uh, especially over around Christmas, New Year's, the holidays, our understanding of lost ones, of loved ones that have died. Father, there is... uh, We have great needs, and I pray that you would draw close to us, help us to draw close to you in this time, that we would look to you, that we would depend on you, and especially as this can be a season also of of despair, of great hurt, that this would be a time that we would cling to you. And for some that are tempted just to, uh, to walk away from the faith, whether in this congregation or close to us, Father, would you draw them, would you help them to see that it's in you that we have everything. Help us to grasp this more and more so that we would love you and truly love others. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Now, please stand for the benediction. And our response to the benediction will be to sing together, Here is Love, as printed in your bulletins. And now receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. Amen.